good afternoon and welcome to The Richie Allen Show for Tuesday the 12th of September 2023. I'm Richie Allen. Thanks for joining me. Uh, do get in touch with me via the usual ways. You can use the app for the programme or the website. I look forward to your voice hearing from you this Tuesday. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, later on in the second hour, Nicola Lund returns to the program. Very, very good writer. Writes for The Conservative Woman and other publications. Uh, Former teacher, too. She will be having an article published later this year in a very prestigious alternative health magazine. Um, She's writing about the terrible suicide of her cousin last year. He was diagnosed as an adult with ADHD and Nicola is suspicious and thinks maybe he didn't have it. And she's writing at the moment about the evidence for misdiagnosis of ADHD. We're going to talk about that with Nicola and also about, uh, well, the political goings on in Wales at the moment, including the introduction across the country of 20 mile per hour speed zones. Nicola Lund later on, you don't want to miss her. And this hour, my great friend Kevin Barrett has recently moved to Morocco from Wisconsin. He's a PhD, he's an author and broadcaster and an all-round good egg. And we'll talk about something he's written on his Substack account. He's written about the terrible earthquake in the country, which has claimed the lives of more than 2,000 people. Sadly, that's a, a number that is climbing. Kevin will be live from Morocco shortly. That is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Live on my website, richieallen.co.uk. The website, fabradiointernational.com in Manchester City Centre and multiple platforms around the world. You're very welcome, as I've already said. Tell you what, you you, you might think I've done this before. (laughs) It never works out like that. That's an accident. Before we talk about more serious matters, um, James Webb, who's he? Well, he's a man, and he had a telescope named after him. The James Webb Space Telescope, operated by NASA, Never a straight answer, some people think. Um, It's claimed that it might have discovered tentative evidence of a sign of life on a far away planet. Don't get too excited right now. I'm telling you this because I know that you like a bit of life forms on other planets. You like a bit of that. Ufology and stuff like that. So um, it detected a molecule, maybe, called dimethyl sulfide or DMS. Now, here on planet Earth, the round one, uh, this molecule, dimethyl sulfide, DMS, can only be produced or is only produced by life. So the researcher stress, stress mind, the detection on the planet, which is 120 light years away, isn't robust. And more data is needed to confirm its presence. Can somebody help me out here? Because I've forgotten. Does 120 light years away mean that you'd have to travel at the speed of light for 120 years to reach it. Is that right? Please help me out. I'm not trying to be big-headed, not big-headed, but I'm not trying to come across as smart here. I, I'm, I'm always wrong when, when, when I get into this type of thing. Anyway, the data isn't robust, apparently, and they need more data to confirm its presence. But yet it's everywhere this afternoon. Professor Niku 
Madhuzadan of the University of Cambridge said that his team were shocked when they saw the results. I'm not blown away by this exactly. Are you, dear listener? Probably not. Anyway, what do you reckon to this? Female surgeons say they are being sexually harassed, assaulted, and in some cases raped by colleagues. This emerged today, the result of a major analysis of NHS staff and the BBC and Sky and presumably ITN have spoken to women who claim to have been sexually assaulted in the operating theatre while surgery took place. If this is going on, and there is absolutely no reason to not believe these women, right? Uh, to, to, to say the least, terrible sexual assault and harassment is wrong. But there's obviously a health and safety issue if somebody is on an operating table and this sort of messing around is going on. Now, it's far more serious than messing around. Don't think I'm underplaying this. Now, the authors of the study say there is a pattern of female trainees being abused by senior male surgeons, and this is happening in NHS hospitals. The Royal College of Surgeons said the findings were, quote, truly shocking. Sexual harassment, sexual assault and rape have been referred to as surgery's open secret. So the analysis by the University of Exeter, the University of Surrey and the Working Party on Sexual Misconduct in Surgery has been shared exclusively with BBC News. Nearly two-thirds of women surgeons who responded said they had been the target of sexual harassment and one-third had been sexually assaulted by colleagues within the past five years. Wow. Now, I've listened to quite a bit of commentary about this or on this today. Some former surgeons and some NHS staff say that among some male surgeons, there is a bit of a God complex and a bit of an arrogance and what have you. Let's listen to former NHS Trust Chairman Roy Lilly speaking to GB News about this today. I mean, I'll just give you a, uh, a, a few uh, numbers just to kind of position this. Um, the ratio of my men to female uh, surgeons at the moment is about eight to one. Uh, so the females are in uh, the minority. They've gone from about 3% in 1990 to about 14, nearly 15% last year. So there is a growing number of them working in surgery. But, and this is the important point, 77% of everyone working in the whole NHS is female. So it's really a, a female dominated profession now 45 percent of all doctors are female it's just in the surgery environment where there it is male dominated and i don't want to kind of stereotype uh people but i mean if you're a surgeon you're probably likely to be an alpha male because it takes a huge amount of confidence to take a scalpel and stick it in someone and fiddle about with their bits and pieces so it does so that requires a a kind of confidence which often overspills into an arrogance and and sort of a right of of passage and clearly the the relationship between the consultants and and fundamentally these will be trainee surgeons they, that, that so the power dynamic is wrong and the 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 uh, gender dynamic is wrong He's uh, speaking with Stig Abel, I believe, who has a question. You know, it makes me think, if you look at misogyny uh, everywhere, we've had the police force that's riddled with misogyny. Yes, I didn't include the question, did I? He asked him about misogyny, so we'll start that again. Is misogyny uh, at play here? You know, it makes me think, if you look at misogyny 
everywhere we've had the police force that's riddled with misogyny we've got this fiasco in spain over the football which is centered in misogyny i mean it just if the nhs is anything i suppose it's a salami slice of life and the nhs is no better or worse but certainly in the in the surgery environment these this is a very very worrying set of numbers it certainly is it's terrible if women are being sexually harassed we would all agree with that all right-minded people Decent people would say that's terrible. But if patients are on their backs, unconscious, anaesthetized, I can never say it, anaesthetized, I still can't say it. Um, well, I mean, it's outrageous. Well, it's outrageous anyway, but it's even more outrageous if you understand. Uh, speaking of, he mentioned the Spanish football scandal. Well, that just goes from mad to even madder. Have a listen. BBC News this afternoon. Now, the former Spanish FA president, Luis Rubiales, has been called to testify on Friday in Spain's National Court. National Court. It's all part of an investigation into the kiss he gave the football player, Jenny Hermoso, after the World Cup in Sydney. Yeah, she came up to get her medal and the trophy and he grabbed her and gave her a big smack around the lips and said, well done. Not saying that's OK at all. I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. But um, National Court, eh? She said the kiss, mad, right? kiss wasn't consensual. <laughs> Mr Rubiales resigned as president of the Spanish Football Federation on Sunday and he's being investigated for possible sexual assault and coercion. I mean, if I walk up to a lady on the street and give her a kiss on the lips or on the face, that's a sexual assault. I don't know the lady. I've absolutely no business putting my hands or my lips anywhere near her. And if you approach a stranger on the street and you kiss them, you have absolutely nothing to complain about if you get your collar felt. No doubt about that. Um, he knew this woman. He had a working relationship with her. They've just won the World Cup. I'm not saying it's right. In fact, it's a bit boorish, according to Celia Walden in the Mail today. A bit boorish. I would agree with that. But um, national court? Sexual assault? I'm not sure it is. Do you want to hear some more madness? Um, totalitarianism. Is it creeping or is it stampeding? You tell me. Uh, councils across London had to double check this because I, I couldn't believe my eyes uh, councils across London well they want to ban smoking um, outside pubs what kind of fuckery is this yeah it's fuckery Amy Amy was partial to a crafty Siggy God bless her wasn't she back in the day um, I've never smoked never never tried it never he- wouldn't hold one hate it dislike it intensely but this is outrageous they want to ban people from having a cigarette outside pubs. Uh, the early part of this century, Ireland, I think, became the first country in Europe. Did it? Did it or did it not? Uh, followed closely by the UK. It happened in Spain when I was living in Spain. Banned smoking in public buildings and in um, hospitality settings. There was a huge debate about it at the time. Now they want to ban it outside. This won't do any good for pubs, will it? Let's hear from Jim Dix. Now, Jim Dix is very appropriately named. He's a Labour councillor. Here he is speaking on Times Radio, and he's all for this. We think, really, it's just a sensible next step following on from the, the indoor smoking ban, which we all remember the huge controversy around back in the first decade of this century. Yeah, we all remember that, Jim. If I was the presenter, I would interject. How is it the logical next step, Jim? People accepted that they'd have to go outside to have a cigarette and all these late years later, how is it the logical next step to tell them they cannot have a cigarette outside in the open air, Jim? 
Um, it also follows a ban on smoking in cars where there are people under 18 in the car. It's, it's just a sensible, logical next step. There's nothing sensible or logical about it. It's out in the open air. You know, who, who explain, Jim. As we all move, and this is a government commitment, we move to having a smoke-free Britain by 2030. and we're Smoke-free Britain by 2030. It's the first I heard of this, but 2030 is telling, isn't it? Committed to a smoke-free London by 2030. and Smoke-free London by 2030. Does that mean that in 2030 it is intended that people will only be allowed or permitted to smoke inside their own homes and maybe only if they own uh, those homes. Is that where this is going? These incremental steps uh, both help people to give up. I wonder when you're a tyrant like Jim, do you even know you're a tyrant? Are you even aware of your tyrannical leanings? You know that you can tell people that you can interfere so much in people's lives and tell them what they can't and what they can and can't do by 2030. I mean, surely self-awareness is not completely dead. They discourage people from smoking and, and most importantly, they protect other people, particularly young people, but other people generally from the effects of, of people smoking nearby them. Um, some restaurants and pubs need money from all sources and they're very happy to take smokers' money. Are you worried that it already makes more sense, at least for pubs, to stay at home and buy something from a supermarket? If you then say to someone who smokes, uh, you can't smoke even outside, you're, you're harming a business uh, that is already on its knees. That's a good question. Stig Abel, the answer? Well, I, rem I remember the same arguments being made in 2005 with the uh, smoking ban in hospitality businesses. Um, people sort of said this would cause those businesses to collapse and that um, they were going to be unviable going forward and people wouldn't go. I go to businesses, hospitality businesses, all the time and see them still full and doing well uh, with people not being able to smoke inside. People will be able to, if they really wish to, move away from the hospitality business altogether and smoke in a sort of a public place. But what we're saying is they shouldn't be able to do it in tables outside where that secondary smoke can still affect people. Yeah, but if people are annoyed outside, surely they can go and sit inside. And even still, it's outdoors. This is madness, isn't it? Hey, and again, if you missed it earlier on, I'm a absolutely committed anti-smoker. I don't like it, but wow. 2030, 2030, that year keeps popping up, doesn't it? Hey, speaking of net zero, Rishi Sunak a couple of days ago spoke at the G20 summit in India and he hinted, didn't, didn't he, that he, he said he wanted to limit the impact of net zero policies on consumers. That's what he said anyway. He said, and I quote, net zero done in the right way can be very beneficial for jobs. That is why we've got to make sure that the story is about the net zero story for me shouldn't be a hair shirt story of giving everything up and your bills going up. That's not the vision of net zero that I think is the right one for the UK. That's what he said in a bid to assuage the fears of his backbenchers and of those who, well, well, those of us who know that climate change is monumental bollocks ultimately, you know, that the policies pursued to bring about net zero don't bankrupt the country. So we move to assuage people's fears. So what do the public think about all of this? On Politics Live today on the BBC, we heard from Joe Twyman. Uh, Joe works for Delta Poll. 
What does he think of what Sunak said about lessening the economic burden of net zero on the public? And what is the mood of the public? Joe Twyman from Delta Poll today. Well, it's not really surprising to me. It's in line with what I expect to be the kind of strategy that the Conservative Party will be adopting going into the next election. When you look at the polling around this, you see it's actually quite a complicated picture. Mm -hmm. Since 2019, Delta Poll has been working with the University of Oxford to track sentiment towards the principle of net zero. So in other words, reducing greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. And we found consistently that around about six out of 10 people support that idea and only one in 10 opposes it. So you have six times as many people supporting than opposing. Mm -hmm. But that's around the general principle. When you look at all of the polling around the subject, you see that, uh, well, there's let me put it uh, gently, some interesting approaches to polling on both sides of the argument. And indeed, anyone on any side of the argument can point to something that will support their position. But if you look at the general themes, what you find is that support is there in principle, but it reduces the closer you get to money being paid out immediately. And also when you have things like uh, a policy that will affect the least well-off in society, mm -hmm. or indeed is seen as unfair, that reduces support. And so going into the next election, I think it will be interesting to see how all of the main parties uh, balance this support for net zero in principle with opposition to specific areas of it. Yeah, on the same programme, Politics Live, Tory MP Craig McKinley, he heads up a net zero scrutiny group of backbenchers. Uh, the presenter, Joe Colburn, had a question for him. Is Rishi Sunak right that we can get to net zero by 2050 without costs, extra costs, to consumers and without our bills going up? I think we possibly can in a future decade, but not in this one. I mean, the reason I've set up the Net Zero Scrutiny Group is because to decarbonise the UK is going to cost something like three trillion, one and a half times the GDP of the country. And I think, as Joe puts very, very well, the idea is supported by everybody, of course. You know, we know one day the you know, oil and gas, even if you're supportive of oil and gas, is going to run out. We will need an alternative uh, technology and fuel to keep the, the lights on and, and industry turning. But we've been in a bit of tread water land for the last few years where it's been lovely idea. Yeah, we all support that. Oh. We're now getting to the reality of mm. costs. And that first reality of mm. costs, I know not a direct so, net zero yeah. issue, uh, is London's ULES. Well, we'll and I have to say... All right, well, that's the ultra-low emissions yeah, zone, but, but, but clean air zone. They're in a, you know, the, the, the similar yeah, yeah. framework sure. and a similar family. But Rishi Sunak is saying it can be achieved without extra costs, so he's wrong. I don't think it can if we go up the current route of Whitehall nudging us towards unknown, very expensive technologies, EVs we don't particularly want, heat pumps that are really not very effective. I mean, I've got a completely different energy plan. That is a decade of gas, preferably um, domestically derived, lower CO2. What's not to like about that? As we move towards rolling out small modular reactors and then perhaps the Eureka I've been waiting for since I was in shorts is fusion technology. And then we'll, and then we'll look back. And say, what have you really been waiting for that? Since I have that long. Be waiting a lot longer. <laughs> but I mean, uh, I'm telling you, mate. We, we know small modular reactors can be done. We know that. All right. Well, let's. Um, I, mean, I, don't, we'll I don't mean. To we'll be look at this country and say, about. what on earth have we done? Covering it in, in in wind turbines that don't work very well, and new pylons and solar panels well, taking agricultural well, the... land out of well, use. Putting agricultural land out of use, he said. We'll look back at the madness of wind turbines and pylons 
putting agricultural land out of use. Craig McKinley, MP, speaking on Politics Live this afternoon with Joe Coburn. This is the Richie Allen Show. 20 minutes. It is past the hour of five o'clock this Tuesday. Lovely to have your company as usual. Keep those messages coming in. I love reading them. I really do. So keep them coming in. Hi to Rob, who says, once we've got a digital currency... The talks about banning this and banning that will actually become announcements. They will simply go on the radio or TV and say, from tomorrow, we've banned X, Y, or Z. It might be smoking, alcohol, sugary products, etc. That's Rob. Thank you, Rob. Hi to Christine in Limavady. Don't know how true this is, Richie, but during one of my many unfortunate stays in orthopaedic wards, I was told by a nurse once that when you agree to be treated in NHS teaching hospitals, you are agreeing to things like internals, etc., when doctors need to be taught. At the time, I thought that's shite, but one would never know, because who reads all the small print on the forms? Good point. Ian says the ban on smoking in 2007 was another marker down the slippery slope of personal liberty destruction. The destruction of personal liberties, Ian. Well, well, well put. Not an especially controversial one at the time, as it sound, sounded like a reasonable thing, but just that little edge closer to totalitarianism uh, or totalitarian diktats on our lives. It was a marker back in 2007 of what is coming, says Ian. And thanks to Andrea from Glasgow. I can't open the link from us in the app, Andrea, but I'll have a look later on. It's a story out of Portugal. A war on tobacco products by the Portuguese government. Uh, bringing in restrictions. Yeah, I'll have a look at that. Thank you. Um, hi to Backbeat, who says, at some point there will be some pushback to this. Insanity. What's the tipping point, though, asks uh, Backbeat. We, as the electorate, should lobby for a leave-us-the-feck-alone bill to be at least debated in the House of Cretans. I love that. Let's get on to that website where you can petition Parliament. Good idea, that. Yes, I. let's see, can we get 100,000 signatures for a bill to be called Leave Us the Fuck Alone to be debated in Parliament? I like it. Hi to Gaz, who's been looking at cars, Richie. Spending a lot of time on MOT check. I put the car registration number that was used on the London Bridge attack. I put it into the website out of curiosity and apparently it's still in use, even though the car was smashed to pieces. Isn't that weird, says Gaz. Chris asks, will all Londoners be dead by 2030? Let's hope not. And Andrea, the link she sent me is to a story about Portugal banning or attempting to ban all smoking outside. So you wouldn't be allowed to smoke anywhere except in your property or within the border of your property. Very good. Thank you for those messages. Send them to me via the app for The Richie Allen Show or richieallen.co.uk. It's good to be with you, to be with you good. It really is this Tuesday. And I'm in especially good form because the weather is nice and cool. I love the cool weather, me. And it's nice and cool. 18 degrees it was today here in Salford. Kevin Barrett, live in the Richie Allen Show after Cindy Lauper. Yeah, music from the soundtrack to the Goonie, Cindy Lauper, and good enough, it's 25 and a half minutes past the hour now. If you've got to be somewhere, you've probably still just got enough time. Get your skates on. Um, you know who Kevin Barrett is? He's a great friend of mine. He's been speaking on programs I've presented since 
uh, the the noughties. That's right. He's an academic PhD author and broadcaster. Check out truthjihad.com. And today, for the first time, Kevin is speaking to us from the wonderful nation of Morocco. Welcome back, Kevin. How are you? Hey, I'm well, Richie. It's great to be here and back with you. That's oh, fantastic. Now, I, I didn't want to attempt to pronounce the beautiful town where you and the lovely Rabia have, have moved, have relocated to. What's the name of it? How do I pronounce it? And tell us a little bit about it. It's called Saidia. Uh, Saidia, you could say. It's right at the corner where Morocco meets Algeria on the Mediterranean. And it's a famous beach town. It has a 10-mile or so long beach. And it's uh, near Oujda. That's the fifth largest city in Morocco. It's an hour's drive away from Oujda. And it's, uh, it's a very nice place. And we very fortunately were far from the earthquake that hit western Morocco. So we didn't even feel it. But uh, the in-laws over in western Morocco ended up spending the night out on the street in case of aftershocks. Yeah, you've written about this on Substack, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, can I ask you this? I've I've been thinking about this all day. I've moved a couple of times, moved country, and each time, it doesn't matter how mature I am, I have a moment, like a real depressing kind of a moment where I sit down and I kind of regret it and I think, what have I done? And, you know, I, I really feel like a fish out of water. Have you or Rabia experienced that since you arrived in Morocco? Have you had a little moment to yourself? Uh, well, I, I've missed my previous home uh, somewhat. I don't, Rabia, not so much, but uh, I was kind of attached not so much to the United States, but to the place that we had there out in the Wisconsin River country of the driftless region of western Wisconsin. We had a, a really nice rural place with, uh, you know, swimming in the lake right outside the door, uh, kayaking right into the Wisconsin River. There was a bike path 20 miles down the road to Richland Center where there was a mask-free cafe that kept me alive during the COVID years. There's a lot of cool stuff there, and you know, I used to love to cross-country ski in the winter across the lake through this massive wilderness of woods along the river. So there's a lot of really, you know, extreme natural beauty uh, and opportunities to enjoy it where we used to live. And so now we're in, you know, a much nicer climate. This is a classic Mediterranean climate, right on the Mediterranean. I've been swimming almost every day in the Med and having a great time. Um, but yeah, a couple of times I have sort of missed that uh, permaculture setup that we had going back in Wisconsin. Uh, nice of you to say that. Yeah, I, I, I usually got over it after a few weeks and, and embraced my, my new life. KevinBarrett.substack.com, folks. Get on uh, the website, subscribe to it. He's got thousands of subscribers because he's an excellent writer. Whether you agree with Kevin or not is irrelevant. He's a great writer, very thought-provoking. Kevin, you've written about what happened. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? And it's terrible to see the way the media covers it, almost lustily reporting on growing death numbers. It's all they're interested in is uh, how many people have died. It's almost like a telethon thing, this, what, what we call disaster porn. But there are real lives involved, of course, real people having to come to terms with it. You've written, interestingly, about um, numerology and numbers. And I've had guests on my program over the years, and I know, I know you have on Truth Jihad as well, people who study this and they find patterns and similarities when it comes to major 
global events, whether they be terrorist attacks or even disasters. What um, piqued your interest about this particularly? Well, Richie, it's, you know, it was the run-up to the anniversary of 9-11, and not just any anniversary, but the 22nd anniversary, 22 being a multiple of 11. And what got me interested in numerology in the first place, or at least, I don't know if you'd call me exactly interested, but uh, I'm open to the possibility that there's something there, uh, was that Captain Eric May, a former U.S. Army intelligence officer who was writing op-eds for uh, NBC News, up until he met me, and uh, he met me right when he had just discovered that the official story of 9-11 was nonsense. And so he became a, a member of the 9-11 truth movement, and he believed that the Illuminati have an affinity for the number 11, among various other sorts of numerological signatures that they put on their uh, disasters and human sacrifice events. And he had a long uh, story about how that's the case, which I probably shouldn't completely go go through here, but I, I think you know some of the examples were things like there were exactly 911 days between 9/11/2001 and the March 11th or 3/11 Madrid bombings, which was the next big fake Muslim terrorist attack, uh, and things like that. So anyway, so that those 11s he claimed were every time you see a huge terror event or a disaster with the 11s jumping out of it that you should assume that it was the Illuminati that was behind it. So when I woke up in the morning and got the news here in Morocco that there had been a, a terrible earthquake, and Rabia, my wife, quickly pointed out that the quake had struck at exactly 11.11 11 p.m. here in Morocco, which is 22.11 GMT, just in time to make the headlines on 9-9, or September 9th, uh, two days before the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, all of that sort of jumped out at me, and it creeped me out especially because the night before this, I had stayed up uh, doing my radio show um, uh, uh, speaking about these uh, the numerological significance of 9-11. Uh, and that just seemed like a, a very strange coincidence. I was talking with Edward Curtin, somebody you should have on the show. He's a brilliant guy, and he wrote a great article about being swallowed up by numbers, arguing that the digital media uh, suck us in to their false digital reality in part by terrorizing us with disasters. And so we had a great conversation about that and about this numero numerology stuff. And then the next, it, it was only a couple hours after that, that the earthquake hit. And then the next day I woke up and discovered it had happened at 11.11, so, you know, I don't know what to think about all this, but I did notice it. And so I, I went ahead and, and wrote about it because my audience or some of my audience is interested in that. You're keeping an open mind, though, Kevin. Yeah. And, and you know, if you wanted to come up with, well, what could be the significance of this? OK, there's Illuminati interest, interest in 11s and they're behind these horrible mass slaughters. What does this mean? Well, uh, it does you know, remind me of my friend Gordon Duff's claim that when he was in the CIA with some level of MJ-12 clearance, that's the secret UFO clearance, supposedly, he saw a CIA memo stating that among the many dozens, if not hundreds, of intelligent life forms interacting with Earth, one of them is an extra-dimensional entity that feeds on human suffering and interacts with selected humans in satanic rituals to uh, maximize the human suffering that it feeds on. 
And the CIA memo went on to say that that's actually okay. It's just part of the cosmic ecosystem. Gordon's reaction was, <laughs> okay, my ass. I mean, that's, right. If that's okay, what wouldn't be okay? <laughs> that's fascinating. I remember the late, great Jim Mars telling me something like that. Maybe he'd heard it from, uh, from Gordon Duff too. And can I get your opinion, Kevin, on the actual decision to cover the earthquake. Look, I'm a news guy, you know that. I came up in commercial news production and, and presentation. Obviously, the earthquake is a newsworthy event. It's something that you would want to tell people. And the UK would have people from Morocco and from North Africa, and they might want to know about this. I get it. But where I get very creeped out by, to use your excellent uh, term there a moment ago, is when they give blanket coverage to it and they keep returning to the scene and relaying awful stories and grabbing people who are at their worst moments in life, grieving, um, lamenting the fact that husband or wife is dead and their, their body is under the rubble. That isn't news, Kevin. That is not news at all. And that kind of plays to or speaks to what you've just said about trying to bring the mood or the energy of everybody watching that to bring their energy down. I'm putting it very simplistically. But that's how I see it. Mentioning on the news, look, we've had a terrible thing happen in Morocco. We've got a phone number for people who might have family in Morocco um, because there's a big Asian population in the UK or a big African population, I should say, in the UK, excuse me, right? And a Muslim population in the UK. So here we go, right? We've got a number. We'll keep you updated and we, we hope the rescue effort goes, um, you know, goes well. That's what they should do, but they turn it into a kind of um, uh, a big production, don't they? Which, which, as you said, brings the mood of everybody down. Horrible. Yes, you're, you said it beautifully, Richie. You're absolutely right. This disaster porn is just horrible. It's disgusting. They shouldn't be doing it. And I, you know, their excuse is that well, they're you know bringing people the reality that's going to shake their emotions, and the people will then be motivated to try to help out. I don't know. I mean, I I, I do think it's it's combination of of spreading fear and bad vibes, uh, and also they make money off it. You know, they they get viewers. People tune in when something really bad happens. People become transfixed and they stare at these screens. And then, of course, the big media people can sell advertising time. So they're making money off this. On 9-11, of course, they, they had people sucked in watching their coverage of it and then watching the war on terror that developed from it. Uh, and they made vast amounts of money. So, it yeah, you're right. That's terrible. And they, they shouldn't do that. Like you said, they should be providing, you know, here, here's how you can help. But they don't need to be, you know, showing these grieving people and so on. Uh, the fact that the media shows up like vultures every time something terrible happens and, you know, picks at the flesh of the victims uh, is is really sad and horrible. You know, we don't really need to see that stuff to imagine, you know, the, the suffering of what it's like. And I can, I, I, my heart goes out these people and I, I can flash back to when I was uh, helpless. When I, I had that body surfing accident in Morocco, uh, maybe four years ago or so, and I was paralyzed and washing in the surf. And the only thing I could feel was my toes and my feet, which I was using to manage to get my head above the surface for a second, take a deep breath and then be washed around for another minute. And, and I was, you know, I was like that for several minutes, uh, thinking that it was probably the end. And finally, some people figured out I was in trouble and managed to pull me out. I was, you know, I thought I'd be paralyzed for life. And thankfully, I, I recovered. But knowing, you know, being in a situation where you're, you're probably going to die, you can't really move 
uh, and just being stuck that way for what feels like an eternity. I, I know what that feels like, and I don't need them to be, you know, showing me disaster porn to know that and to feel compassion and uh, to pray for these people. God, Kevin, I'd forgotten about that altogether. Yeah, thank God. I remember speaking about that with you shortly afterwards on, on this programme. Kevin Barrett is our guest, academic, PhD, researcher, broadcaster. Kevin Barrett.substack.com speaking to us live from Morocco today. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name of the town. I will later on. I'll get it right eventually. Uh, great to have Kevin on the programme today. Kevin, um, I was um, speaking on last night's programme uh, about the interesting articles in the Times of London and the Telegraph this week about about the former Secret Service agent Paul Landis, who has come out and said, as you know, Kevin, he was standing on the running board of the car behind JFK in Dealey Plaza in 1963, November. So, so, so there he was. And he's thrown doubt on the magic bullet theory by saying that he knows that the bullet that was supposed to have passed through Connolly and Kennedy and through the wrist and all of that, that that bullet was, um, was tampered with. What do you reckon to this revelation, Kevin? Is it something that we should get excited about? He's 83 now, is Paul Landis, or is it just one of those things that will be forgotten about in a couple of weeks' time? What do you reckon? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to know because I can't imagine him coming forward and talking about this and saying the things that he's saying from the standpoint of that this is somehow going to help the cover-up. It's not. It's it's really underlining the obvious fact that the magic bullet theory is ludicrous and always was. Now, what he's saying is kind of strange, that he's the one who took the magic bullet out of the limousine and he put it on JFK's stretcher from whence it somehow magically, <laughs> once again, what a magic, yeah. that was a really magic, transported itself over to Connolly's stretcher. Uh, it's a very strange story. If the Warren Commission were really interested in the truth, it would have interviewed him and all the other close-up and, and dirty witnesses, right? But they didn't. Uh, and he, he claims he kind of just uh, felt so horrible about that day that he ignored the whole subject. And it wasn't until decades and decades later that he really understood that there was a controversy around this bullet that he himself had moved. That's kind of hard to believe. But then again, you know, people do react differently to trauma. And so maybe he, and may, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's another level of this where maybe he was uh, told not to talk about this by somebody and maybe, you know, threatened, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly. In any case, yeah, I mean, just having the New York Times admit that the magic bullet theory is false is a big step in the right direction. And there's a really good article about this by David Talbot, who's a huge mainstream media figure who went rogue on the JFK assassination quite some time ago. Uh, and so if the mainstream media ends up having to admit that the magic bullet theory is false and the conspiracy theorists were right all along, I guess, you know, the chalk went up for our side, <laughs> whether yeah. we win the game or not, I don't know. Really interesting. And he also said, didn't he, that um, they heard other shots which were not accounted for by the Warren Commission. I mean, it's it's blindingly obvious, isn't it, to everybody with a brain who's looked at this, that there were multiple shooters placed at different locations in Dealey Plaza. And, and as well as answering that, Kevin, please, is it your belief that the fatal headshot came from ground level, maybe from a manhole um, in, in, in the street? What do you reckon? You know, I, I don't really know, Richie. I mean, the obvious thing is that it came from the front. It was an exploding bullet and it blew his brains out the back of his head. But whether it was from that manhole or from the grassy knoll, 
I'll let the you know the expert, the ballistics experts uh, who are very very interested in spending vast amounts of time on those kinds of issues. Yeah. I'll let them deal with it uh, because I, I you know back when I was 15, I studied it enough to know that the magic bullet theory is ridiculous. That Kennedy was you know had his brain, brains blown out from the front. That it was a coup d'état, and, and we pretty much know who did it. It was the same dirty wing of the CIA that works with the Israeli Mossad and global organized crime, same people basically that did 9-11 and a number of other things. Yeah, we've always disagreed on this. I, I've never believed that the CIA would outsource any of this stuff to Mossad or anywhere else, but I respect your right to believe what you believe in. Um, you've interpreted it differently to me, and before anybody jumps down my throat, no, I'm not scared of Israel. I, I spent plenty of time on this program criticising Israel uh, over the years. Kevin Barrett is our guest. Kevin, let me ask you this. Um, what's going on with the President of the United States? Yet again today, multiple media organisations around the world are laughing out loud at a gaffe by President Joe Biden, this time um, speaking about the US relationship with Vietnam, he kind of nods off and says, I'm going off to bed. I mean, what's happening there, Kevin? I, I, growing old is not funny. Uh, dementia, if the gentleman is suffering from that, isn't funny. I, I take no uh, pleasure in that, or, or there's no comedy in that. But why would this go on? I don't understand it. Have you got any explanation for it? Not really. I think that Biden was brought on board as a way to get rid of Bernie Sanders. The billionaires who dominate the Democratic Party didn't want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. So they had a number of attempts, you know, fallback positions and stuff. And that final fallback position was to unite around Biden. And they're able to do that by having a machine and a sympathetic electorate in South Carolina for that crucial primary. Uh, but I don't think they really necessarily thought through the age issue back when they picked Biden as their anti-Bernie Sanders guy. And and now, you know, there's a great article at the UNS Review by Ron Unz about the comparison. You know, he compares the USSR with its uh, sclerotic leadership, people like Brezhnev and Andropov. And those guys were spring chickens compared to, you know, Biden and Dianne Feinstein, who's even more far gone than Biden. And, uh, and I guess Nancy Pelosi just announced that she's running for re-election and probably she'll keep running until she's dead and maybe even another few years after that. And <laughs> so Ron Unz points out that, that you know, we're, we're, it's like a rerun. It's like the USSA, a rerun of what happened to the USSR, where this ancient sclerotic leadership, you know, really uh, a corrupt society where the cracks were getting bigger all the time. Uh, the empire was falling apart. And finally, it, it you know, it fell apart under this leadership of these ancient geezers. And that's exactly what the U.S. is doing now. And plus the you know, situation in terms of information control. You know, the USSR was a very censored society, to say the least. And they tried to keep denying reality right up until the end. And the U.S., I think, is in the same position now. And again, read Ron Unz's article about that at the Unz Review, which is unz.com. Loads of interest in you, Kevin. There always is on the programme. Thanks for that. Can I read a couple of messages on numerology? Uh, this is from Layla. Hi, Layla. Thanks for this. Richie, listening to Kevin, I've heard that along with 22 and 33, the number 11 
is the bringer of spiritual awareness and a devout supporter of humankind. It is supposed to represent illumination, a channel to the subconscious insight without rational thought and sensitivity. That's from Layla. Now this one uh, from Terry. Terry says 23 is a major number within Freemasonry. Julius Caesar was stabbed 23 times and murdered in 44 BC. Maybe next year will be the big one. Well, I suppose, Kevin, if later this year or next year we get a massive geopolitical event around terrorism or something, we'll be reminded, won't we, of um, this conversation today for sure. Well, that's right. Yeah, that reminds me of Robert Anton Wilson's uh, discussion of the number 23. Of course, his, his law of 23s was that if you're looking for the number 23, you'll probably find it. But he also acknowledged that there's a kind of Freemasonic element there. And, you know, and I should have mentioned that, of course, because... The Illuminati is uh, supposedly a particular sort of extra nihilistic and revolutionary wing of Freemasonry. And, and the Freemasons are you know, allegedly uh, working with you know, off-planet entities of some kind uh, for whatever long-term historical purposes that they're, they're serving. So, yeah, that's... I, I try to keep an open mind on all that stuff, and I don't have the security clearances for yeah, the Freemasonic yeah, yeah. uh, initiation level to know for sure. Yeah, a, a Mason once offered me, well, said to me that he would propose me for membership. This was in Nottingham about 11 years ago. And obviously low-level stuff, basically, that, you know, I was going to take over a business in Nottingham and that um, my my chances of success would be greatly succeeded by networking, Kevin. So uh, it never came to pass anyway. Although uh, some of those um, independent media consumers who don't like me, and there are many of them, uh, they believe that maybe I'm telling porkies and that I did join the Masons, Kevin. But uh, I didn't uh, join the Masons <laughs> at all or anything like it. Come here and I tell you, this, um, this um, interests me as well. Kevin Barrett is our guest, folks. So Kim Jong-un then, the leader, the North Korean leader, has taken an armoured train to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, before Kevin takes over and gives us his tuppence worth, I despise Vladimir Putin just as much as I despise the leaders of this country and the leaders of the United States of America. Now, a lot of people can't understand this. They really can't because they, because they think that I'm on the right side of a lot of stuff like Syria and stuff like that. And yes, I'm glad that Russia prevented or helped to prevent, um, you know, the, the, the fascists uh, overthrowing Bashar al-Assad. Of course I was happy. But I believe Vladimir Putin to be a gangster. I believe the Russian people are just as much controlled uh, and, and under the jackboot, as it were, as we are. So I don't like any of them. But I'm fascinated as to what you think about that, Kevin. Kim Jong-un is meeting with him. They are nuclear countries or nuclear powers and western media is absolutely aflame with talk about this is terrible and the usual scaremongering is ongoing what's going on with Kim Jong-un meeting with Vladimir Putin in your opinion is there anything to be concerned about well I think you have to understand that both Russia and North Korea are victims of insane American imperial expansionism uh, Korea was practically bombed back to the Stone Age. The, the survivors of the American bombing of Korea during that war survived because they, they were living in caves. Uh, the country was leveled. A huge proportion of the population was murdered. The Americans used all kinds of biological weapons as well. That truth has trickled out. And that traumatized them so much that you know they ended up with this uh, North Korean garrison state that they have now that's based on 
basically, you know, this trauma that they experienced from the United States. And so they don't want to knuckle under to this evil American regime that did this to them. And I don't blame them. Uh, on the other hand, I, I'm not saying that the North Korean government model is my ideal, not, not by a long shot. You know, traumatized people create problematic regimes. The Algerians are another example of that. I won't get into that. You know, the Algerian government recently killed a couple of Moroccan jet skiing tourists. And I, I wrote a whole piece about how there's a national trauma in Algeria that leads to this kind of behavior with their, their corrupt military. But, you know, similarly, North Korea has this traumatized regime. And, and Russia, too, is trauma, has been traumatized by repeated invasions from the West, Napoleon and Hitler being two of the most famous. And now the American empire is pushing right up to their borders, putting a first strike nuclear arsenal that has it's not designed to retaliate. The American nuclear doctrine is we are going to shoot first with nuclear weapons, whether you like it or not. They're putting five minute nuclear weapons right next to Moscow. These have gotten more and more stealthy and accurate every year. Russia is up against the wall with an American gun pressed to its skull. And that's why Putin did what he did. Now, do I like what he did? No. Do I understand why he did it? Absolutely. Would I do the same thing in his place? Probably so. I would have to. What else could I do other than resign? And so, you know, when, when Putin and uh, you know Russia and North Korea get together to try to resist psychotic U.S. imperial, you know, massacres. And the U.S. has massacred, Richie, yeah. 60 million, mostly civilians since World War II in these imperial escapades. Uh, you know, we met the enemy and he is us. He is the Americans. And when Russia and North Korea defend themselves against the United States, even if I don't always like the kinds of regimes that you have to have when you're defending yourself against the world's biggest gangster, I have to be cheering for them. You won't you understand why, yeah, because five minute nuclear weapons stationed or positioned around Russia is beyond provocation. It's tantamount to insanity. And the military industrial complex and the men and women who work within it and their lackeys in politics, they are either the most evil people on planet Earth or they are patently insane, Kevin. Did you see last week US defence secretaries and US secretaries of state were on television talking about providing depleted uranium ammunitions to Ukraine to blow up Russian tanks. We know exactly what depleted uranium munitions uh, result in. We only have to think about Fallujah, don't we, in Iraq? Yeah, yeah, lots, huge numbers of birth defects. And, and Russia is already uh, attacking these stores of depleted uranium munitions in Ukraine. It's a complete disaster. Yeah, it's, it's really embarrassing, and, this, and it's, it's disgusting. And this is one of the reasons I left the USA, and I'm not particularly unhappy about it. As much as I love that place in western Wisconsin that I was talking about earlier on the show, it's just such an evil country. It's run by such evil gangsters, the worst monsters in history. They make Hitler and Stalin look like Mother Teresa. They're, they're that bad. That's why I can't live there anymore. Apparently mother, apparently, mother Teresa wasn't great either. Now, Kevin, from what I understand, <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're right. Look, sixty million, because there will be people who will email me later on and say it's outrageous that you left Barrett away with comparing the U.S. to Hitler. But you're right. Sixty million that we know of civilians murdered in 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 the last seventy, eighty years, and those were people who had a right to life. They had a right to expect when they got out of bed that day that they would go about their business without some foreign power from 3,000 or 
10,000 miles away, launching missiles at them and blowing, th- blowing them to pieces. I mean, it's unimaginably evil, Kevin. I'll agree with you. Seven minutes to the top of the air. Kevin Barrett is our guest. In the few minutes we have left now, my friend, uh, the talk is ramping up again, particularly in the United States, about restrictions coming in to offset or to, uh, to deal with COVID variant waves this autumn and winter and people are getting a bit nervous. Now you've moved to the beautiful country of Morocco, I can say this because uh, my better half and I travelled, Caroline, and I travelled a little bit in Morocco when we lived in uh, very southern Spain. Beautiful place, the people amazing, couldn't do enough for us. It was, it was lovely to visit Morocco. Um, what do you think, how do you, have you looked into how the Moroccan government approached COVID? And what do you think about it? And what would you expect if the World Health Organization started putting out diktats about new variants? What do you think you might be subjected to in Morocco? You know, I think it was pretty similar to to the U.S., maybe not quite as bad as Europe. Uh, I think the, the government here in Morocco tends to be kind of conservative and pragmatic and you know they want they don't particularly want to join the list of these countries where 60 million people have been murdered and so they've always that maintained good relations with the US there's kind of a tradition here of maintaining good relations with the US Morocco was the first country that recognized the independent United States of America and so there's been a kind of a bond there uh, and so during covid unfortunately in my opinion the Moroccan government followed the standard U.S. approach, the WHO guidelines for the most part, but it did so in a more, in a Moroccan way, which is a more relaxed way. You know, if you come through Morocco, you'll notice that the security people are friendly and human. They'll smile, you know, not like these TSA guys in the USA who will generally, you know, scowl at you for the most part or keep a very stiff upper lip as they, as they pat you down and they'll kind of grope you as they do it in Morocco. They'll find an excuse not to grope you and they'll, they'll smile as they avoid the groping, you know, so the whole, uh, society is overall a lot more relaxed. And like, I have a cousin here who actually, no, that's my brother-in-law was the one who was able to avoid uh, a supposedly imposed COVID shot. He was, he's a teacher, and they were supposed to get the COVID shot, or the vaccine shot, to uh, keep their jobs. And he he held out and he said, can you promise me absolutely that I won't have any bad reaction? And he went through a couple of levels of bureaucracy. And finally, they said, you're right. No, we can't promise you. So we won't force you to take it. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So he said, listen, you cannot give me informed, I cannot give you informed consent because you can't guarantee me I won't become unwell. And eventually, to their credit, they said, fair enough, you've got us there. Wow, Kevin, because that wasn't the case in the UK or in the United States. It was a case of tough shit, Paddy. If you don't have it, you're not going to keep your job, right? Yeah, and you know, even though Morocco inherited a kind of top-heavy bureaucracy from the French, it's a more humane bureaucracy than your average bureaucracy. These are, are regular people, and you know they're and they're a little bit relaxed. And for the mo- most of them, are not you know trying to inflate their self-image by giving you a hard time and forcing you to see how your whole life depends on their decision about how to dispose of your case. Which is the case of you know, a lot of bureaucrats are like that. Moroccan bureaucracy it's 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 a pain to navigate. And you know, I'm trying to get a residency permit right now and. My, uh, my kids are trying to become citizens, and there is a bit of a gauntlet to run. But there's, there's still a level of humanity here that I really like at all levels of society. People still get together and talk. 
you know, lots of socializing, uh, you know, shopping in the open air markets in the souk rather than walking around like zombies in the shopping mall in a George Romero zombie movie. And so it's, 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 it's generally, a, it's, it's a good place. I mean, I, you know, once I get the language down, you know, I, I learned formal Arabic better than Moroccan Darija. And so that, you know, getting fluent in Darija is going to be a project. Uh, but I think once I get there, I'll be really happy here. This program will be on air nine years this coming Friday, but I've known you before then, and uh, you've been gracing my shows um, for for years and years and years. So on behalf of the listeners, obviously on behalf of myself and uh, Caroline, we want to wish you and the fabulous Rabia nothing but the best of everything and the happiest life you could ever live in your time in Morocco. It'll be a fabulous success, Kevin. I really do mean that. KevinBarrett.substack.com um, Send all the positive vibes in the world out to Kevin and Rabia as they embark on this chapter in their lives. Kevin, I know you'll be back on again soon. Thanks for coming on, pal. Thank you, Richie. God bless you, and keep up the great work. You too, Kevin. As I said, kevinbarrett.substack.com for the articles Kevin referred to, truthjihad.com. Listen to his radio shows. They are terrifically put together, well put together, uh, thought-provoking, and it's good to be challenged, because I sometimes hear things I don't necessarily agree with, but that's a good thing. Kevin Barrett on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Uh, The time, what is it? It's fast approaching uh, two minutes to the top of the hour. We'll be taking a different uh, direction or changing course slightly. In a few minutes' time, friend of the programmes, Nicola Lund, former teacher, excellent writer. Uh, these days can be read uh, in many places, but the conservative woman in particular. She got in touch with me. She will have an article published very soon in a very prestigious alternative health magazine. In fact, it's called What Doctors Don't Tell You. They've asked uh, Nicola to put together a piece for them because her young cousin committed suicide last year, which is a terrible thing obviously. Um, He'd been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Nicola doesn't believe he had it. And is writing and investigating about misdiagnosis of ADHD. We'll talk about that and other issues on the programme when she joins me in around about 10 minutes time. A little bit less than 10 minutes, excuse me. But I do want to read some of your comments and I'll be reading your comments in a couple of moments time. Stay with the programme. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk This is Johnny Cash, one of the greatest cover versions of all time. This is his take on one, which is a great U2 song, Johnny Cash then. Is it getting better? Johnny Cash, his take on the U2 classic one at a three and a half minutes past the hour of six. It is Tuesday, the 12th of September, 2023. I'm Richie Allen. This is The Richie Allen Show. And thank you for all of your messages. Isabel was in touch. Speaking of Biden, says Isabel, could it be that he was chosen or unofficially chosen as the next US president due to his son, Hunter, his ties with BlackRock? In other words, BlackRock is behind Biden's presidency because of his family links with the son, Hunter. And through Hunter, BlackRock has more than ever a full foot and a leg in the White House. That's 
pretty plausible. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Good, uh, uh, that's a good message, that. Good, good shout, that is about. Andrea says, Richie, this morning I received my weekly shop from Iceland. The delivery man was wearing a mask. I asked him why, as you do. He said, all deliveries, uh, we need to be wearing masks again for all deliveries. I just left it at that. I think masks might very well be coming back, pal, says Andrea. And somebody sent a message earlier on. I think, or I saw a message earlier on, either here or on social media, from somebody who said they were recently asked by a receptionist in a doctor's surgery, would they put a mask on because some of the staff had been absent due to contracting COVID. Yeah, maybe it's coming back again. Yeah, and thanks to Dean for your message, Dean. He said, watching Jackie Kennedy as she was scramble over the back seat of the car to the boot, trying to scrape JFK's brains off the car as if they could be saved. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen on film, Sistine. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible image, isn't it? I remember being very shocked as a kid when I saw the Zapruder film for the first time. It's not something you can prepare a child for seeing. You know, pre-social media. Dreadful, dreadful thing. I'll say no more. Uh, about that. Lots of messages coming in. Joe Public says, depleted uranium on the website, not the best fertiliser for the Ukrainian bread basket. Yeah. Yeah, you start firing shells with depleted uranium, and they say they need the depleted uranium because it makes the shell, uh, uh, the, 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 the missile, the projectile, it's much tougher, and it pierces very hard armoury. You know, very, very strong army like tanks and what have you. Yes. Number of you on richieallen.co.uk posting some very interesting messages about numerology. But they're too long to read out. But I'm just giving a heads up to people who are not on the website. There are some very interesting things being posted where it says comment live. So check them out. Comment live. Okay. Brilliant. Let's get our next guest back then on the programme. Um, I think she's a terrific writer. As I said, she writes for the conservative woman, but you will find her articles um, in lots of different places. She's a former teacher and uh, has graced the programme a few times before. She got in touch with me, in fact, a few weeks ago and said, Richie, I've got a piece coming out later this year uh, for What Doctors Don't Tell You, which is a terrific alternative health magazine. It really is. She says it's, it's basically about the suicide of my young cousin. He was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. And I'm suspicious about that, Nicola said to me, and has been writing about and investigating around the evidence for misdiagnosis. She wants to hear from people who believe their loved ones have been diagnosed, misdiagnosed, excuse me, with ADHD. And she's thinking about maybe writing a book on this subject in the not-too-distant future. We'll talk about other issues besides. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend Nicola Lund. Nicola, how are you? Welcome back. Hi, Richie. I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me back on. Not at all. Are you watching the rugby? No, not interested, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, uh, You're <laughs> I'm that? one of the, 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 the few people, Welsh people who have no interest in rugby. And my husband's English, so he likes rugby league. So He's more into <laughs> rugby league, which, which of course in, yeah. these, in these parts is, is all the rage compared to Union. But there you are. I found the only Welsh person, well, not the only one, uh, who's not watching it. <laughs> but anyway, Nicola, great to have you back. Um, listen, um, um, thanks for sharing this with us, by the way. It's obviously very personal to you. Um, your cousin dying in that way. It must be terrible for the family. Um, tell us why 
Um, tell us what you know about ADHD and why you believe that he may have been misdiagnosed. Right, okay. Well, I'm not an expert, but um, obviously I was a teacher for 15 years and, um, you know, I, I've got a, a, a basic understanding of ADHD and it's a developmental disorder and it's usually... Um, well, according to the NHS website, it'll tell you that it has to be present in at least one setting um, as a child. You know, it starts in childhood and progresses into adulthood. But my cousin, um, he was, well, he was, a, he was a model pupil in school, really. He was a very placid, um, well-behaved boy, you know, good listening skills, good grades all through school and there were never any um, issues raised um, in, in respect to his behaviour or his, his attitude at all in school and um, <clears throat> so I used to have quite a lot to do with him as a child because he was actually, our mothers were sisters but my daughter was the same age as him pretty much and so he used to spend a lot of time with us, we used to take him swimming and take him on days out and things like this and as I said, I I never when I heard that he'd been diagnosed about five years ago, I did raise my eyebrows, but I didn't like to say anything because um, I I'm not one of these people, you know. I I know that there are people out there who, um, when they do get diagnosed with it in adulthood, it's sort of answers a lot of questions for them, and it, and they you know they they're grateful for this diagnosis, so they realise there's nothing you know inherently wrong with them and um but I don't think my cousin had it as I said because of the fact that nobody had ever raised it so I think well myself and, and about a dozen of other, other teachers that he had through his childhood can't all have been wrong you know and you know we are hearing there is an exponential increase at the moment in ADHD diagnosis a lot of celebrities are coming out and saying they they been diagnosed with it and I was actually tasked with the with dealing with the coroner when he died and it, it was an awful it was a really upsetting um circumstances that they, that they found him he'd actually um he'd actually fatally wounded himself he'd, he'd cut his throat and um the, the the awful thing was that as he got into his late teens he did he started. He got heavily into the festival scene. He was working around festivals, and unfortunately, this goes hand in hand with recreational drugs. And so he did. You know, he was a silly. I loved him to bits, but I, you know, his behaviour in terms of getting into drugs was was a silly thing, really. You know, it was a it was a recipe for disaster because. Um. By the time he died, he was well. He was given, he was prescribed this dexamphetamine for the ADHD. He was also on a drug called gabapentin for nerve pain, and he was also given mirtazapine, which is an antidepressant. And when I looked into, when I looked at his medical records, and I I looked into these drugs, all three of them list suicide as possible side effects. So what? those by themselves. Jesus would have you know raised a few questions but unfortunately he was also purchasing um with friends 
They were, you know, they were friends complicit in this. Um, he was purchasing things like Fenibut and Diazepam illegally online. So it was a recipe for disaster, really. And um, as I said, yeah, I was tasked with it with the job of dealing with the coroner. And when we when it came to the the inquest, you know, they, there was there was a police officer present, and she was describing the circumstances surrounding when they found him, and that there were, like as I said, drugs found in in his. Um, flat and they were talking a lot about the side effects of these drugs etc but nobody was interested in the side effects of the uh, the pharmaceutical drugs why all, not Nicola? Here, here's the question why not if if um the young man god love him and it's um i'm genuinely upset listening to this and and what happened to him um because um something similar happened to a great friend of mine back in waterford back in uh, 1998 um, similar similar circumstances to suicide, so it's bringing back a few memories here. So the kid, God love him, he took a lot of recreational drugs. We know that those can lead to behavioural changes later on in life, and they can also lead to depression and anxiety. And he gets diagnosed with ADHD, your young cousin, and then he's given these drugs, these uh, a series of drugs, these three drugs he described, which do or can cause, not do, I shouldn't say do, which can cause or lead to suicidal thoughts. I mean, that's a massive red flag, but they don't want to talk about this. And why did you ask? I mean, I mean, you're, you're a journalist, you're a teacher, no more curious person. And obviously it's personal. Did you ask them why? Why are you not interested in this? Well, uh, the inquest was, was another fiasco altogether. But um, that, that's another story because we, we, it was in a, it, we, we had re- great difficulty hearing what was going on in the inquest believe it or not we it was it, it's held in an old um courtroom and um they, they they were updating their sound system and it was it was it, it was a we couldn't even believe it or not we couldn't even hear properly everything that the, the police officer was saying throughout the, the the inquest and to be honest i mean the outcome of the inquest was it, it was a narrative verdict which means that they couldn't exactly explained what was in his mind when he took his own life which we were that was preferable to it being a verdict of suicide but obviously you know I think that these medications didn't help yes he shouldn't have been on all this um the recreational drugs but the as I said the prescription drugs certainly didn't help and when I when I looked into it you know um there is um, there's a couple of papers, medical papers, which suggest that polydrug use, um, which unfortunately is rife amongst the younger generation these days, but that can sh- that can manifest that you know the symptoms of polydrug use can be mistaken for ADHD, and also the. Um, can I can I stop you there, Nick? Can I stop you there? And you're well familiar with this show, so you know we've got plenty of time. That's that's really yeah. important to say that. So yeah, there is a lot of recreational drug use around. Maybe there's a bit more now than there was previously. I don't know, but maybe there is. And yeah, we do know that it does lead to behavioural changes in people, like um, loss of concentration, uh, temporary loss of memory, restlessness, anxiety, and um, you know sometimes. Um, it it removes barriers from people. People do things impulsively that maybe they wouldn't do. And these are all things that can be listed as ADHD. 
and this is the point you, you're you're making, and that that you, you know, and these are things that should have been taken into consideration because I've been looking into this myself, and when your young cousin, you know, presented with these symptoms, the people looking after him. You know, presuming they knew that he had a history or a previous history of recreational drug use, they should have been able to put two and two together and reach the, the number four and not leap to the ADHD um, conclusion. And you're concerned, Nicola, by the sounds of it, that this, because you've said it already, that this is going to be something which is going to increase this misdiagnosis. Yes. Um, sorry, my husband just walked in. He's put me right off. <laughs> no worries. Um, Stay hello to him from us. Yeah. Rugby League fan. We love Rugby League. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, what did you just ask me? No, no, you, just to, to say you're concerned, obviously, that with the drug use, the recreational drug use, leading to changes in young people's behaviour, and that might look to somebody, a, clin- a clinician maybe, that they have ADHD, there's, there's going to be an increase in misdiagnoses and obviously as a result of that an increase in youngsters being given prescription drugs which they might yeah. not need and which might which, which might harm them seriously yes exactly and and I, I did contact the royal college of psychiatrists for, for a statement and they've said to me that every adhd assessment should include a review of substance use um they 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 say they're not aware of an evidence base to suggest it's regularly being misdiagnosed, but um, they did admit that the effects of recreational substances can mimic the sub- symptoms of ADHD, as can the withdrawal symptoms experienced by people dependent on sub- such substances. And we, we just feel he was let down by, um, he, he moved, you see, he moved um, back to his hometown about six or seven months before he died and he was seen by somebody in, in the mental health um, team. Well, he asked, sorry, he wasn't seen by them. He was seen over the phone and this was in 2022 because of COVID and everything. He, was, he wasn't actually, he didn't have a face-to-face um, consultation. He was spoken to over the phone and this doctor, the psychiatrist, upheld a previous diagnosis. But he upheld it on um, just a few rather spurious um, symptoms, in my my opinion. He he said that he upheld the diagnosis due to mood instability, struggling getting off to sleep, trouble getting up in the morning. Well, you know, I'm sure a lot of people yeah. suffer those things. He also said he was disruptive in primary school. Now that's taking my cousin's word. At face value, because he wasn't. We've got his school report still, and we've looked at. He was a model pupil. You said he he was a model pupil. You said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it is strange. He did come up with a couple of things, which you know he he also said he was truant in secondary school, never did homework, and again, this isn't true. And I did, you know, I I even went to I checked with his friends just in case one or two friends in case. There were things that he, had, you know, maybe he hadn't been caught being truant, and he had, but even they said no, you know. And um, a couple of his, the friends that I spoke to also did say to me, you know, they'd known him since school, and they said, yeah, we weren't really sure about the ADHD diagnosis. So you know, it it, it just concerns me because of the the potential side effects. Yeah, you know, people taking these drugs needlessly, and they might not need them, and 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 it's such a tragic situation and it could have been avoided what do you mind me asking what what was his first name your cousin oh his name was tom his name was tom well god bless tom god rest him 
Um, look, that's terrible. And uh, I'm going to mention as well for people listening in Waterford, I'm, I'm thinking of Joey Walsh, um, Paul Walsh's brother, um, who used to come into the Reginald in Waterford. And he took his own life in very similar circumstances to Tom. And uh, yeah, I, I'm mindful of, of, of Joe. And he didn't get a lot of help. He did from his family. His family were wonderful, just like your family, Nicola. Obviously wonderful people. But um, he got very little help from the medical people in, in, in Waterford. Um, but I'm thinking of him today. Nicola, there's huge interest in this. And I, I want to mention this. I'm not saying for a second that I do not believe that ADHD is a legitimate condition. I'm not. But amazingly enough, back in 2010, I was working for Talk Radio Europe and I had to fill in for a lady called Hannah Murray, who I think might still be there in in, uh, Marbella. Hannah was going away to the UK and asked me to fill in um, early afternoon and she'd booked a conversation with a doctor to talk about ADHD. So I had to take over her her, her workload. So in I went anyway and sat down with this guy who had lectured at some Ivy League universities in America, but I can't remember for the life of me. And this is a proper PhD guy, and he said to me that in his opinion, ADHD was a pharmaceutical company or corporation's invention. And he said something which I'll never forget as long as I live, Nicola. He said pharmaceutical companies are diagnosing um, normal life. They are diagnosing... The, the things that people feel and experience as they go through life, they are labelling them as medical conditions, inventing conditions. And then they are obviously medicating them. And he said it's all about money. So needless to say, I argued with him and I put, you know, so I'm not having any of that, but he was very, very good. And he said, you know, what do you expect children to do sitting in uniforms and, you know, starchy shorts and, you know, itchy jumpers and what have you? Children that are being told to listen to something they find immeasurably boring. He said, they're going to act out, they're going to act up. Now look, I'm being very simplistic here, but this is what he said. He said, I do not believe that ADHD is legitimate. It's just kids doing what kids do because they're bored and tired and fed up. And what what else would you expect children to do? Now that's very simplistic, but that's what he said at the time. I'm not saying I believe that, but there will be some people listening to us today who will um, have some sympathy with that. I'm not asking you now to... um, to weigh in on the rights or wrongs of, of ADHD, but you might have some opinion on that. Well, I, I, that, that it sounds similar to the what Peter Hitchens. He he wrote an article um, a few months ago, and he says similar. You know, he said he said, "I know I'm going to cause a lot of controversy, but you know, does it even exist?" Um, and he 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 did say that. Oh, about thirty years ago, I think there was um, some sort of a. Um, a convention that took place, I think, over in the United States or somewhere, and uh, people came from across the world to discuss ADHD and to actually come to a consensus of what it was. And I don't, and, and from what he said, it, it, they didn't seem to reach this consensus. But he said he, this particular, the, the report that he was he'd seen at the time, it was, I think he, he'd kept it or something. He'd, you know, kept a record of it because he said it's, you, you can't find it these days online, you know, you can't find. So, yeah, he, there are people that believe that and it, it does make you question, you know, I mean, young people are, they all seem to feel that they have to have a syndrome these days or a lot of them do, you know, and um, they're being, you know, they're being manipulated, they're being brainwashed into thinking that, you know, just a slight deviation from 
the so-called norm means that there's something wrong with them that they you know they need a diagnosis of something some mental health condition and, and it is awful like they're becoming dependent on yeah on on these yeah. what they think is a you know, quick uh, fix sort of thing we're, we're speaking with, I, I, go ahead nicola sorry yeah I, I did happen to speak to one lady who contacted me through twitter and um she was concerned about her daughter's recent diagnosis. Um, the daughter was in uni and it had been suggested to her by one of her university lecturers or tutors that she may need to go and have um, a diagnosis, sort of a test, an assessment, sorry, for, for ADHD. So she then got diagnosed. Fortunately, she's not going down the route of medication, but the... the she, I think she was eligible for a free laptop or iPad or something along those lines. And I was talking to another friend recently whose husband um, works in universities and he seems to think that there's a lot of financial, there's a lot of incentives then for, uh, for, for youngsters yeah. when, um, when, they, when they do get diagnosed. Yeah, and, and as you've said already, and I, I've had it said to me by people, there's a bit of kind of a get out of jail element to this as well, where a younger person thinks, well, you, you know, I've got a ready-made excuse now for any behaviour which might wind somebody up or which might be deemed to be kind of improper by by authority figures or by parents. Nicola Lund is our guest. Nicola's a former teacher, very experienced. She's a writer, terrific writer. I'm not kissing her backside, she really is. I will put a link on the podcast notes to where you can find Nicola on Twitter and her articles on For the Conservative Woman. I've been speaking about her late um, cousin Tom, who um, died in very tragic circumstances. And Nicola suspects that he was misdiagnosed with ADHD and that maybe... Uh, the drugs he was prescribed uh, contributed to him becoming unwell and taking his own life. And there is, ma- I, I'm not saying this, massive interest in this. Uh, messages coming through the app and through the website, richieallen.co.uk. Thank you for them. A number of you talking about the side effects of antidepressants, and I, I really appreciate this. Uh, so, so folks, go to comment live on richieallen.co.uk. Read the messages there uh, coming in from people and interact with them. That's the great thing about the, the comment live. You can interact with those messages. And Nicola, you and I spoke a few times over the last few years some of the things that the government the government has 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 done the 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 covid lockdowns the jabs you know i believe they've created a lot of anxiety in society and i've admitted on this program that i've been changed a bit myself because of what's happened in the last three years i'm not not going to say a wholesale personality change but it's had a negative impact on me and I, i i'm sure that people are suffering you know, with kind of lack of concentration, hard, uh, finding it difficult to feel happy about anything, you know, feeling a bit, you know, lonely, uh, concentration levels, you, you know, maybe issues around that. And, and maybe you go to a GP and you talk about that. And the GP doesn't say, well, you know, this is a natural reaction to the things that were done to society in the last three years. The GP just goes on as the computer and the, the interface and comes out and says, you might have ADHD. That's not implausible, Nicola, is it? No, I know. It's a, a pill for every ill, as they say. You know, yeah. That's uh, the way they've been trained, isn't it? And, you know, we we did go through the process of, um, well, we made a complaint. Um, I think it was called a spell. Yeah, I've got it in front of me here now. It's a special 
serious incident clinical desktop review. So we did, we, we went through this process of complaining to the health board um, about what we you know, felt was obviously a, a, a lack of help for him, um, but we didn't really get anywhere. I think they did eventually admit that there, that there was a sort of slight failing um, but you know it's, it's the usual story they're not interested but, and and yet we've had Dr. Jane Dunnigan on this programme, somebody who you're familiar with and Jane um, discussed with parents of children um, she, she discussed with them what informed consent really is and that they need to have a look at everything before they make a decision on childhood vaccination and they've absolutely pilloried, they've vilified Jane Donegan. And yet you've got, your family has a legitimate question about the treatment of Tom and what happened to him and what might have been avoided. And this is typical. I hear this so many times over the years on this programme, 29 minutes past the hour. And you're going to be writing about this, um, Nicola, um, for the Conservative Woman and for the Alternative Health um, magazine that we talked about. You're, you're going to continue this investigation. And did I did I pick you up right when we spoke over email? Um, people listening to this programme, this might be ringing some bells for them. You'd like to get in touch with those people, is that right? I, I would be interested to hear, yes, if there are people out there who you know, have a similar story that they feel that their loved ones were misdiagnosed. Um, yes, like I'm certainly happy to for them to get in touch with me. And, um, you know, they can do that via Twitter or, or I can give out an email address that they can contact me on. Um, because, you know, so many people, I mean, if it, my Tom's parents, they were estranged, but they, they wouldn't have, you know, they were obviously devastated we all we were all devastated but you know when, when you're a parent obviously he was their the, the only son that they had together and um you know they they wouldn't have even questioned it really they, they it was really it was me as a, as a former teacher raising the the adhd issue and saying well do you really think that he had it you know and i sort of started to explain how many parents have gone through something similar and haven't had that little bit of insight, you know, to ask questions, and and how many people have just accepted it if, if you know if they've lost people yeah. in similar yeah. I'm going to give your Twitter handle. It's at Mrs Lund L U N D one. So at M R S L U N D one at Mrs Lund one. You'll find Nicola's articles, as I said, on the Conservative Woman. Get on. Uh, that look that the best to look with that, and I mean it when I say I'm terribly sorry that that, that happened. You know, completely avoidable it seems, and um, and horrible for you and for his parents. And uh, if anybody is um, has experienced something similar around ADHD, get in touch with Nicola and share it with her. It'll be useful to her investigations as she continues to write about this. Let's, um, with your permission, of course, let's turn to something else because you're a journalist and you're across a number of issues and this is very interesting because this something well, well not quite similar well there's something similar happening in Ireland they want to reduce um, speed limits right across Ireland based on what what is believed to be an increase in road fatalities here in the UK there have been calls to find people and impose points on their license 
if they are even one mile an hour over the speed limit. As it happens, the police have some discretion. They usually go after people if they are uh, 10%, I think it is, over uh, the stated limit, whether it's 70 miles an hour, 50, 40 or whatever. But in Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford, I've been listening to this and you're following it, um, wants to introduce 20 mile per hour speed limits across large parts of the country. Um, are you a bunch of demolition derby nutcase drivers in Wales, Nicola? What's going on? Oh. It's absolutely ridiculous, and they're being so disingenuous. I've been tweeting about this. Um, they're saying it's just, it's for safety, um, and they keep going on about children and how um, how your chances of being hit um, if you're travelling at thirty miles an hour. Sorry, how, your chances of you know serious injury are increased so much if you're going you know thirty miles an hour, whereas if you're going twenty, it reduces. Anyway, it's, it's it's not about safety. It's they, they've I've been listening to the Senate live this afternoon, and they um, they actually said that it, it, they should um, save about six to ten lives a year. Yes, it'll they say also that it will save um, a lot of um, casualties, injuries, etc. But the real reason is it's in their transport strategy and I've written about it is that they are looking to get modal shift away from private vehicle use. They are trying to get people out of their cars. Yeah. They're claiming that, you know, if people are traveling at slower speeds, it will encourage more people to walk and cycle. Um, if you, if you, if you do an internet search for the transport, sustainable transport hierarchy and, and look at the images, you'll see the actual, like a pictogram showing what they want for the future in Wales. And it's at the top of the hierarchy is walking and cycling. Underneath that, you've got public transport. Then you've got electric vehicles. And right at the bottom, you've got conventional vehicles. So, you know, they are trying to get people out of their cars. Um, and it was just painful to listen to them in the Senate today. You know, that we've got a... This is happening very quickly, Nicola, isn't it? This is the thing. Yeah, we, we've we've yeah. got a Tory opposition, but it's not you know it's not a very large uh, number of them, unfortunately. And the things they were coming out with, there was one one Labour MS. I I didn't rec- catch his name, but he was saying that in his constituency, which is Sinetley, um, they've even trialled, and this is what they probably will do, I would imagine, across Wales. They've 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 trialled um, where, where they're stopping drivers going over the speed you know, over the speed limit, and they they got children on board with the community speed watch teams, and then they're giving the drivers the option of being quizzed by the children. They're giving them you know questions they need to, the, the children will ask them, which you know if that's not infantilizing it's madness, yeah. People, I, I don't know what is. But, um, and they're planting the seed in the minds of the kids that cars are a bad thing. And yeah, so. you shouldn't desire to own a car. You shouldn't have an ambition to own a car. They're a terrible thing. I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, would you believe, on my run earlier. He had Tulsi Gabbard on and a former um, mayor or a former congressman from Hawaii. And they were talking about 15-minute cities and, you know, going after the motor. 
the the cars basically, and they were pretty shocked by it. they 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 referenced the UK. It's happening quick here in the UK, isn't it? How do you keep your calm when you're watching the Senate, and these idiots are talking in such idiotic terms? And you're well, sitting to be there. honest, yeah, it's the first time I've actually taken the time to to listen live, you know, and um, yes, because it does it does make my blood boil. But I wanted to hear particularly what the the Deputy Minister for Climate Change had to say. I knew he was going to make a statement about this 20 miles an hour. But they've sent a leaflet out to every home in Wales about about it last week. And it's the figures they quote are based on a survey commissioned by a company called Beaufort Research, where they actually surveyed 1,002 people um, out of a population of over 3 million, you know, 1,002 adults. And they... Adults over 16, I, ha- I have to add here, because this is a common theme in Welsh government surveys these days. They're classing adults as being over 16 for research purposes. So you think they might, out of the 1,002, they, that might have been dominated by 16 to 25-year-olds. And they're, of course, the most on board with the climate stuff, right? Well, I wouldn't say it was dominated. I think that you know they, they have given... Um, information like i think there is a breakdown of the age range but the point is they're asking you know they're they're asking these people these 16 year olds who, who let's face it are not even driving so you know um they, they, when they when they questioned them they um i'm looking at my notes now they three in ten had spontaneous concerns about local roads and road safety but when you looked into what their spontaneous concerns were the number one concern was potholes, not speed. Potholes, right. 84% of, these, of the people, of the respondents, said that they felt very or fairly safe when walking. But the Welsh Government are claiming that no, people don't feel safe enough to walk. You know, they, they were even saying today that you know, lots of children are indoors these days because they, parents don't feel safe to let them out. And I thought, well, no, that, that's, you know... That's again, they're being disingenuous. Most pe- most children are in these days because they want to be on their screens. That's right. You know, let's face it. They're online uh, and their contacts and friends are increasingly online. They're not meeting people physically. That's right. Yeah. Again, I don't want, excuse me, I don't want to repeat myself, but it, it, it maybe it does bear repeating. The thing that upsets me about this is the absolute speed of it. No pun intended. And the lockstep nature of it everywhere, England. I heard Radio 5 Live this morning talking about it. They had people on there calling for people to be fined for being one mile an hour over the limit. In Ireland, the reduction of the limits. It's, um, you know, people are supposed to believe that governments are acting autonomously, that each individual government in a particular country is acting of its own volition. But they're not, are they, Nicola? They couldn't be because it happens everywhere at the same time. Exactly, and it's it's in it's in now Welsh government publications. I mean, I've been I've got a Substack page which is re- mainly about Welsh government issues, and I actually wrote in one of my articles that they Mark Drakeford had hinted about this twenty mile an hour um, reduction a, a few years about I think back in twenty nineteen, and I actually wrote that he was going to actually in fact bring it in. Um, rather than, you know, after hinting at it. I, I actually published it before the BBC came out and said that they were going to do it because it's in their future Wales plan, which if, if you go online, you know, 
pages and pages to read, but it's there saying that it, it, it's going to come in. And the next thing then is going to be, I think they're going to be linking, um, they, they've got an environment, it's called the environment and in brackets, air quality and soundscapes bill 2023. This is um, peculiar to Wales. And they're looking at, um, well, it it's going to propose an obligation to introduce a national soundscapes strategy. So we are the first UK country to do so. What's that? And well, it, it's it's go they, they're going to be asking um, local authorities to have sort of annual soundscape um, reviews. So that uh, they're going to look at policies for assessing and reducing levels of noise pollution. And in the consultation that they ran, um, included in um, and under the category of noise um, is transportation. So you think, well, they probably come at the vehicle driving, you know. The of course they will. From that angle as well. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, get, they're getting very creative, aren't they, about how they yeah. plan to get cars off the roads, off, off our roads. Absolutely. 15-minute cities. It's easy enough to knit it together now if, if you've got, you know, a brain and a pair of eyes. You can see exactly where... Where, where this is heading. And there, there's you at the Conservative Woman. There are others doing their best to kind of raise people's awareness around this. But I don't know about you, Nicola, when I speak to people about it or attempt to, and I do it in a very benign way, they, they're not interested people. I, I don't understand it, why they can't see this train wreck coming at us. I don't know if that's your experience. It is really, yes. You know, I'm, I'm telling people and I've got friends who went along with the covid thing and were you know went along got jabs and everything and they're coming round now to, when, when i'm telling them about the welsh government plans now they are taking it on board and they're listening to me and they can see it but i just think they just don't want to think about it they just want to take one day at a time because they, we've all been through so much in the last yeah, three that's years right. yeah uh, and yeah, I think we just had an, uh, enough There's in, a bit of information overload. You're right, you're right. And I I found in people, when you share something with them, oft, oftentimes they'll concede that, yeah, you've got a point there. But I see, and you can see it in people's eyes sometimes, there's a bit of hopelessness. It's a bit of kind of, almost like the thought passes or crosses the mind, but what can I do about it? And that's terrible, that, because, you know, the positive thing is, is that you... you you, you, you kind of, you can see it or you can see it somehow. The negative thing is, what can I do about it? Well, in fact, there's plenty you can do about it if people if people come together. Nicola Lund is our guest and we've only got about seven or eight minutes left today. This has absolutely flown by. The Conservative Woman on Twitter, at Mrs. Lund1, M-R-S-L-U-N-D-1. Get on Twitter and follow Nicola. Look, we'll obviously follow, follow this up, of course, as the weeks and months go on, Nicola, the you know, the, the assault on the right to own and to operate a car. And good work on that. I, I'm going to put links to the articles, of course, on, on the podcast notes later on, as I always do. Got to ask you this, and I know you're no expert on it. I know um, you have an opinion, and I know you've not been deeply diving into this, and I'm, I'm sure you will in good time. So I don't expect you to have all the information and all the facts, but we can talk in general terms. Um, it's quite obvious, isn't it? that the World Economic, sorry, the World Health Organization, and maybe the World Economic Forum, it plans 
in the near future. It plans that um, children will not learn in a building with other children being taught as they would have done by Mrs Lund at one time, but that they will learn from home and they will learn on a computer. That's the plan, Nicola, isn't it? And I find it repugnant. I There are stronger words I could use to describe that, but that is where they want to take education. Well, it, it's yes, it's looking like it's a distinct possibility because I, I found a document <clears throat> we've got in Wales, um, a collaboration. Public Health Wales are collaborating with the World Health Organisation and it's called the International Health Coordination Centre. And I've been looking at some of their publications. And back in, I think it was February 2021, well, every month following COVID, they were having these um I think they call them horizon scanning reports, you know, looking at various aspects of COVID and how we're going to go forward from this. And Because as you know, COVID has been the catalyst for all sorts of change and, and discussions about how we'll change in future. And it did say in this particular, um, in this particular report that schools could close altogether, you know, it, it, with advances in artificial intelligence and yeah. the internet of things, you know, in the future. So I think, you know... Nicola, can I... Say, sorry for interrupting um, you. Could, could, sorry for interrupting you there. Could you foresee, I mean, in this instance, and um, again, will you do us a favour, send us a link to that so I can include that on the notes as well later. But could you foresee them using climate change as an excuse to recommend that children learn from home because they don't they won't need to be transported possibly and and in fact they were talking in the senate today although they've only found two schools so far in wales with this um is it raac you know the concrete yeah yeah um the problematic concrete they they did admit that they're still looking into it so that by the 15th of September there, there could be more schools that are identified as having this and but it did mention when they were talking about the schools that they, they they were mentioning the decar they just have to touch upon the decarbonization so you I'm thinking I I've written about this they they, they want us to decarbonize homes well uh, that's what I spoke to you um on a, on a previous show yeah. about and obviously, they're going to want to do it with public sector buildings as well and schools, you know. And I, and I did. I just wondered today whether they might they come out and say, well, it's going to cost too much to do all the schools, or because they were talking today about um, how they're managing in these two schools in North Wales, where you know they're having a certain amount of the children are in, and some of them are online learning, and it, you know it's almost like they're getting people used to the idea of online learning being an alternative and it and it would save so much money when you think about it you know it would save um we've got so many teaching assistants now on top of um teachers so that you know you have all these teaching assistants that they'd save their wages they'd save money on all sorts you know maintenance repair of school buildings. Well said, and they could also convince parents that you will save a lot of money. And as people are more and more uh, working either hybrid, which is for listeners who haven't heard the term, 
doing a couple of days in the office and doing a couple of days in, in the home. But as people are more and more moving to working more from home, they can sell this idea to those people by saying, you won't have to buy uniforms for your kids, you won't have to buy school books, you won't have to do this or that, um, it'll be much cheaper in the long run. That's another thing you could see as well, yeah. Yes, um, and before, I, I a few years ago I was doing a little bit of supply um, before COVID and just before I finished, they were, they were talking as well of doing something called an asymmetric week where they were making the school days longer um, and then they were finishing early on a Friday and, and you know, so they, they, they're, and they're talking about um, making the school holidays shorter, aren't they, I think? Or, or th- there's all sorts of, they're trying to tweak the system all the time. So I think, yeah, and if they want 30%. Yeah. I was going to say they want they want they want thirty percent of public sector workers to work from home. So why you know if if they want some of the people if they want people to work from home then I'm sure they will look at children Keeping working the kids from home, home eventually or, or to some extent. And Whitehall is looking at an experiment where civil servants will work four days a week only. Um, so they're looking at reducing the working week to four days. So that could be the beginning of something else. It might lead on to something else. That's absolutely fascinating, that. Um, all these th- things happening at the same time. We know they've, they are and will continue to trial the concept of universal basic income. And this will be ideal for the people who don't have any job. But, uh, you, know, you know, you can stay at home. Don't worry about it. We'll give you a universal basic income. And, of course, that will be rules-based. That will come with certain conditions. So you could see how... All of this could lead to, yeah, keep uh, the children at home. It's um, diabolical stuff, Nicola, but it's also interesting. And thank God that, um, you know, the Conservative Woman is one place online where you can read about this, uh, uh, you, 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 you know, where, where people are actually doing journalism and writing about it and putting the information in the public domain. So I really appreciate that. We're just about to run out of time. I've got to read a few comments about ADHD, which uh, came in in, in a great, huge amount of text came in and, and, and messages when we were speaking about that. Um, so it's at Mrs. MRS Lund, L-U-N-D-1 on Twitter. Do give Nicola a follow there. Before we do part company, um, do you have to work um, to... I mean, what do you do to kind of wind down, Nicola? If, if you don't mind me asking that, you know, when you're covering this stuff and it is so dystopian and chilling at times as it is, and obviously, of course, personally devastating with uh, with Tom, what do you do when you're covering this stuff to kind of get away from it, to get a break from it? You don't watch rugby, we know that. Not rugby union yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I've, I've taken up um, while swimming recently, which is uh, which is great. And of course, living in Pembrokeshire, we've got lots of coastline. We, you know, to do to do it. But I've do, I've joined a local group, which is which is great. And I'm hoping to keep going throughout the winter. It's supposed to be uh, even better in the winter, apparently. <laughs> no way. So um, wow. yeah. <laughs> I've never done it. I'm not going. I went. I went for a Christmas swim a couple of times for charity, and uh, came out as fast as I went in. To be honest, so that'll be fun swimming wild because the i mean it's one thing one thing doing it in the sea or the ocean but um rivers and lakes my god in the winter yeah can i 
can I give out? I, I can give out an, an email address as well if anybody uh, does. Of course. Contact me, and, and they're not on Twitter, and they've got they've got a story they'd like to share. Absolutely, um, go ahead, Nicola. I've got a secondary email here, which is Nicola Lund one, the number one, at gmail dot com. Brilliant! I've written that down. Would you like me to, to include that in the podcast notes as well? Yeah, that's fine. And obviously, anybody listening from Wales, um, if they want to look at my Substack, I'm nicolalund.substack.com. And there's a lot of information there about what Welsh Government have got planned. Excellent, Nicola. Excellent work. Thanks for coming back on. I really appreciate it. Said it last time. I mean it. The door's always open. Um, read Nicola at the Conservative Woman uh, at her Substack uh, account. Look for Nicola Lund on Substack. She's just giving you the address there, and I'll put the email address on the podcast notes. If um, that if if you've experienced if you've had issues with ADHD misdiagnosis, you can reach out to Nicola. Nicola, thanks so much. Great to have you back on, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Richie. Bye for now. Nicola Lund live on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show as the time is fast approaching. So it is uh, seven minutes to the top of the hour. Now, an enormous amount of messages came in about ADHD. And rather than read out so many of them individually, uh, a number of you got in touch with me to say it is real. Anne got in touch. Hi, Anne. My grandson has two brothers and a sister, all normal behaviour children. Although some can be misdiagnosed, that does not mean ADD doesn't exist. My grandson is now 26 and normal. A number of you got in touch with me to say you do believe it exists. A number of listeners got in touch to say that you believe that the increase to the vaccination schedule, which has happened over the last 25 years, where children are getting more jabs in their formative years, than had previously been the case. A number of you saying that maybe the jabs are playing a part in the, um, you know, children being irritable, finding it difficult to, co- difficult to concentrate, being impulsive, all this stuff. So lots of different opinions coming in on that. And yes, I'm going to say it, the majority opinion seems to be, coming from you, is that you think that ADHD is an invention of the pharmaceutical cartel. I don't know if it is or if it isn't. And by the way, Nicola Lund never said that ADHD does not exist. She didn't. Uh, She believes that her cousin Tom may very well have been misdiagnosed with it and then prescribed medication for depression. Some of that medication clearly coming with side effects, potential side effects to make people have suicidal thoughts. And... uh, uh, she's looking for answers, basically. She's a journalist, and she's a very good one. So that's um, th- that's what we were talking about there. She didn't say she doesn't believe it exists. I interviewed accidentally, I wasn't meant to, an academic many years ago in Spain whose name has absolutely deserted me, an American guy who'd written a book, and he believed that pharmaceutical companies... I can't remember how he phrased it exactly, but something alongside, something along the lines of they're diagnosing life or the experiences of life. You know, the things we go through, they're, they're, they're slapping a label on them and then providing a drug for them was his, was his take on it at, at the time. And that's, um, you know, a position I would have sympathy with uh, as time goes on. I, I would have sympathy with, with that position. Look, thanks for all these messages. Really appreciate them. Um, Holly was on to say, there isn't much financial advantage at university. They might fund some counselling or mentoring as the laptop money 
is minimal. That's re- referencing something that uh, we were talking about with, with, with Nicola a little bit earlier on. Look, that's uh, more or less it for today's programme. Tomorrow, I'm opening the phone lines and the WhatsApp number and the Skype. So I'm taking your phone calls tomorrow. It's been ages since we did a phone-in. I want to hear from people who've never phoned in before. I really do. And I want to hear from more ladies. So tomorrow, after a news rundown, I'll open the phone line, the Skype number, and the WhatsApp. Of course, I will post all of this stuff, the details, uh, the contact details, on my website. You should know them by now, because they are read out um, lots and lots of times by me, and I've posted them many times on Twitter and on Facebook and on the website, but I will do it again tomorrow. There are several ways to reach me. You can phone me the old-fashioned way, 0161818 There is a WhatsApp number for the programme, and I'd like to hear from you tomorrow, because it is a while since we've done the old phone in so it is right so you better be loquacious you better be verbose you better be ready for a rant we'll try and get through lots of calls tomorrow on wednesday's program that's at five o'clock uk time i might very well watch the first 15 or 20 minutes of the england scotland friendly this evening which is live on free to air television i believe could be fun that could be rowdy we might watch a bit of that it's in scotland isn't it tonight it's in edinburgh as far as i understand listen thanks so much to uh, nicola lund terrific thank you nicola thanks to kevin barrett and uh, once again all the best to kevin and rabia on their journey in morocco their their new life there the best to them you look after yourselves and one another thanks so much for being with me today closing out with aretha franklin the queen of soul bye see you tomorrow <laughs>